0: Thank you guys very much. And thank you, Sarah, for singing even though you are sick. She has a cold and you wouldn't have known that, would you? But uh, thank you very much. And thanks, David, for that song, that song saying, God, you are, Lord, you are more precious than silver, more costly than gold, beautiful than diamonds. There is that description in our text this morning, but it's about the Word. But the Word, remember, points us to Jesus. always points us to Jesus, so it's more than appropriate to sing that song about him. If you'd been a a teaching pastor in the mid-16th century in Geneva, Switzerland, you had an advantage that uh, a lot of guys just don't have today. Uh, Every week, the the teaching pastors of that town would gather together, and they would talk about what they'd be preaching that Sunday. Sometimes they were preaching the same text, sometimes they weren't. One of the participants in that study was a guy named John Calvin. You may have heard of him. So you can imagine what a blessing it was to all the congregations that these pastors would gather and discuss what they would be preaching. And then they would each talk about some of their own ideas and that the Lord uh, impressed upon their hearts as they discussed the Scripture. Well, I have a secret to tell You that is really not much of a secret to to some of you at all. I have a group of friends that I get together with, and we discuss scripture and talk about, oftentimes talk about what we're going to be preaching. In fact, many a call I've received on Friday or Saturday, and I've made many a call and said, "You know, I'm going to be saying this tomorrow." Just tell me that I'm not out of my mind. Would you please tell me that? And of course, and, and the almost always the answer is no, 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 that. And then we elaborate, we check one another. Uh, Jimmy Elliott, pastor of Christian Light Church over uh, in Christian Light and uh, Community uh, on the other side of 401 from us. And Dave Brown, a a, a very, very much like our David Calvert, a very theologically minded minister of music. Uh, And then Denton White, who's a pastor at Grace Presbyterian in in Fuquay. It's it's rare that all four of us can get together, but when we do, wow, it's so great. And and even, even though the four of us don't get together... Oftentimes, two or three of us will at, at, at different times. Linda used to call us the rabbis. I'll tell you something that uh, uh, was was really funny. Uh, if you've ever driven down 55 to, between Andrew and Fuquay, heading toward Fuquay on the left, just past the bridge and Holland Road, there's this... Uh, we used, when I was a kid, we used to call it a beer joint, you know, it's just a, a little bar called... used to be called Daddy Rabbits, and then it changed to Mama Rabbits, and... You, you can imagine what happened there. Uh, <laughs> but uh, one time it said, and this was during the year that Linda was sick, and her sense of humor just exploded that year. She was so funny. So many things that she said were hilarious. But this day she got tickled. It said, come and hear our singing rabbit but the tea was way over here, so it looked like, come and hear our singing rabbi. And she, you know, she just kept on and on. Which one of those guys got a gig at Mama Rabbits, you know? And uh, so that 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 was funny. But it's, it, it's, it's just a, a blessing. Maybe one or two of you have been in on some of those conversations that we've had. But uh, it's rare, like I say, that our whole group gets together. The other day, though, uh, we were all able to meet for lunch on Friday and... And, and, and true to form, discussed Scripture and discussed what we would be preaching about on Sunday. Week before last, David Brown and I got together. Pastor there, Ross Marion Teaching Pastor, was out of town, and Dave was going to be preaching. And he told me he was going to be preaching on Psalm 19. And he he said uh, some things that just really piqued my interest. And I said, Lord, you know, (laughs) perhaps that's what I need to be preaching the following week. So you're going to be benefiting greatly from Dave's preparation, although... The sermon ended up going in a completely different direction than I anticipated. And the very thing that I wanted to share this morning, we'll get to it sooner or later, um, that he shared about Jesus from Second Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, but the first part of this me- message in particular, you will be benefiting from Dave. But actually, truth of the matter is, you're benefiting from all three of those guys almost every week that I get up here. And I trust that that uh, they're benefiting from my (laughs) thoughts and study in in Scripture as well. C.S. Lewis said that Psalm 19 is the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. Indeed, this psalm combines beautiful poetry with profound biblical Theology And it follows where we started last week, talking about the Word of God. Today we're going to see in Psalm 19 that God reveals Himself not only in His Word, also through creation, first in creation, and then through His Word. This study is going to inevitably lead us to the New Testament where this psalm, as so many psalms are, is quoted. So many times you see New Testament Scripture that actually came from the psalms going to talk about also this morning the christian's relationship to the law. In fact, we're we're going to be diving in pretty deep and I'm going to at a certain point I'm going to say, "Okay, start taking notes if you w- really want to get this down because there's just too much to explain as I go and you're going to need to take some notes and do a little bit of study on your own." I mean, I'm going to be doing as much explaining as I can, but there's more there if you'll just think about this at a deeper level. This week. Let's begin our time by reading what really is a breathtakingly beautiful psalm. Psalm 19. If you would please stand as we read the word. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor their words whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes out through all the earth. And it's funny, the ESV some places has um, their voice goes out through all the earth. And here it has, in this one it has their measuring line. In my other NIV it has, that I use to type this up, it has their voice goes out through all the earth. And their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you will put this heart in us. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Father, reveal yourself to us this morning in your word and may we have open hearts and and minds and ears to hear and eyes to see you. God, direct our thoughts toward you. That's that's one of the primary purposes we gather on Sunday morning, is so that we can think deeply about You. And I pray that this would be a time where, Father, Your Word is clear to us, gives us an understanding of our relationship to You, and our and, and an understanding of Your Word and how it works, and the Christians' responsibility as far as the Old Testament is concerned, and keeping it and obeying it. Just just help us, Lord, to, to make sense of all of that this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks and be seated. This is a, a beautiful psalm, is it not? I mean, right from the very beginning, we are told what the heavens are designed to do. Declare the glory of God. Look at all the communication words in, in verses 1 to 4. Verse 1, declare. Verse 1, proclaim. Verse 2, it pours out speech. Two, reveals knowledge. Three, speech, words, voice, voice, words. Do you think God is saying something to us about creation or saying that creation is trying to tell us something? Creation is God's first way of communicating to us. We look and we say, What does this tell me about reality? You know, it's so easy for Christ followers to forget what it was like before they were saved. Some of you can't think about this at all because you were saved and you were very young. And you've always grown up with a biblical worldview. But we forget what it's like to have a darkened mind, a mind that has not um, yet been enlightened by the Lord. And so we look around the creation, we look at this creation and we say, How can anybody not believe? that a God exists, that how can anybody believe this this just happened? I tend to say that all the time. I, I do. I think about it a lot. How can anybody not believe? But it wasn't always that way. There was a day that I did my best to deny the existence of God. When I was a teenager, I said, there is no God. He doesn't exist. Now, I didn't do so with nearly as much intelligence as a lot of people do today. I just did it because I was a hippie and I thought that's what you were supposed to do, you know. And So I denied the existence of God. I didn't like authority of any kind and so I rebelled and said, there is no God. That was convenient. Well, now I look around and I think, I, I don't get it. I don't get how people... But it was once that way. But you know what? A person who says that has no excuse. He does not so do so with good reason. He has to look at this creation and recognize it's beyond my explanation. I don't care how much science I have, how much I know, I cannot make it all work that it just happened accidentally. The heavens virtually cry out that a a magnificent God made this magnificent world. And in fact, the universe is a constant witness. Day after day, verse 1, the heavens are pouring forth speech. Verse 2, like a bubbling spring. And night after night, it is revealing knowledge. Revealing that the universe is not empty. It's a universal witness. Verses 3 and 4, no matter where you go, you see the glorious creation. Romans ten eighteen, quotes... This verse, along with Deuteronomy thirty-two twenty-one, is a part of Paul's argument that God's testimony is to the entire world, not just to the Jewish nation. Everybody has seen God. In that same chapter, he has just finished saying, though, without the testimony of the word, they won't know Him like they should. But in ten eighteen, he says, "But we all know that God exists. Just look around you. It's a universal." Witness. In verses 5, the sun is singled out as a spectacular witness and yet an obedient one. <laughs> Aren't you glad that the sun is obedient? It's not the creation that is to be worshiped, but rather the creator. God has assigned the sun its place and its course. It has a tent, it has a track. The sun, in all its magnificence, is no more than a part of God's. Handiwork, And as big and impressive as the sun is, it cannot fill the God-shaped void in our lives. Now, we don't worship the sun today, but we do worship wealth, houses, property, children, family, sex, ease, comfort, health, sports, TV, movies, movies, music, on and on we can go. The lesson we learned last week, if we fill our minds with that, which is not pointing us to God, then sooner or later we're going to begin to think like the world thinks and not like God does. And so we find ourselves worshiping the creation rather than the Creator. The message of the sun in the heavens is this. You think I'm something, you should see the one who made me. It points us to God. The heavens declare their own glory. That's not what it says, is it? The heavens declare the glory of God. And we get to know him much better through his word. Creation tells us that God exists. God's word tells us about God and His expectations for us. In verses 7 and 9, there are six terms used for God's Word, six ad- adjectives that describe those six terms and six statements about what God's Word does and what His Word is in and of itself. Derek Kidner said, the six, These six facets of Revelation are not sharply distinguished, yet each has a certain character of its own. I think you will agree as we go through this. In verse 7, David begins by saying that the law, or Torah, is perfect. Here, he's referring to the written instruction given in God's Word. But it includes all that God has written, not just those commandments, you're to do this and not to do that. It's all that God had written about creation, about Adam and Eve, and about and, and our responsibility is to respond in whatever way we're called to. If it's nothing else but just believe what God has said, about Noah in the ark? Listen! God didn't start speaking in Genesis 12. He started speaking in Genesis 1. And it's our responsibility to believe that. Now, old earth, young earth, I don't care! But God created, that's a big deal. He created Adam and Eve. They didn't evolve. He created them. That's a big deal. Our responsibility is to believe it. Where he makes commandments, our responsibility is to obey. We're going to talk a little bit about, though, what about the Old Testament commands, some of which we don't ever obey. I mean, most of you are breaking the commandment to not wear a piece of clothing that is mixed. Uh, So it has mixed materials. So what about all that? Well, well, we'll get to it, unless I have other spasms along the way, and then we never, never get there. So David says, Torah is perfect. Now, when, when we're looking at this, we can think of all of the testimony of God in His Word, the whole Bible. The law of God is perfect. What does it do for us? It revives our soul. It provides nourishment and refreshment for us in the same way that food does. You know, those of you with sugar problems really know what I'm talking about. But you know what it's like when you're just weak. You haven't had food in a, in a good while. And, and then you eat the food and it's like um, uh, uh, Jonathan, Saul's son, was when he had the honey. His eyes were brightened it just, and he was ready to go. Well, that's what the Word does for our soul. Then there are God's testimonies or truth that is attested by God Himself. His testimonies are sure or trustworthy. They bring wisdom to the simple. That is why it is so crucial that we check what we feel God wants us to do with the Word of God. Denton White said at our Friday meeting, that the Spirit of God is clothed in God's Word. He'll be really excited when I told him he made the screen. (laughs) God's Spirit is clothed in God's Word. Do you see how much sense this makes? Because we can do an awful lot of foolish things by saying, well, the Lord just told me I need to do this. And in fact, it's God's testimonies that keep us from disastrous behavior which can be done in the name of the Lord. Easy for us to do that. And all of us are susceptible to that. To do crazy things and then blame God. Verse 8. God's precepts indicate the precision with which God addresses us in His Word. His precepts are right, morally right or straight. No wonder they make the heart rejoice. We heap sorrow upon ourselves when we go against God's precepts. His commandments, which emphasize His authority, are pure and they enlighten our eyes to truth and real meaning of human existence under God. The longer you live, the more inclined you are to say, you know... I guess he was right. I mean, I thought I had it figured out. Or I thought I could circumvent. I thought I could... You can't. Verse 9. The fear of the Lord is not only a description of Scripture, it's also the, the appropriate human response to God's Word. It's clean and radiant and it endures forever because it is the permanent foundation for human life. Also in verse 9, God's rules or His ordinances or judgments, the judicial decisions He has recorded about various human situations are true and dependable. You can count on them. You can take them to the bank to mix metaphors. A lot of people are going from the bank to the courthouse these days rather than the other way around. What more can be said about all of these descriptions of God's Word than that they are righteous altogether. No wonder that David goes on to say that the heart that understands the value of God's Word sees its worth as far greater than the most precious commodity in that day, gold. You think gold is big today? Gold would get you anything back then. And it was better than the sweetest tasting food. Honey. Honey. I had good berries last night, and that day honey was just about as good as you could get. They didn't know about good berries. Concrete. We are warned and kept out of harm's way by the law, and we are greatly rewarded when we obey God's word. And that's the problem obeying the word. I mean, if our relationship with God depends on keeping the law perfectly, we are all in big trouble. Indeed, the guy who wrote this psalm had a few problems keeping the law. Didn't he not? David had a few problems. Well, let's let's move in a little bit of a different direction. I want us to think about a fourfold purpose of the Old Testament law, though this list is, is, is not comprehensive. You may, might want to write these down and, and plan to keep on writing because we're going to cover a lot of ground in the next few minutes. And this is really important ground. And it's not going to cover the, the topic, but it's at least going to get us moving in that direction. And then maybe it'll begin to help you thinking about, okay, I'm a Christian. What does the Old Testament have to say to me? I'm not sacrificing animals. I am not keeping all of the ceremonial laws that were required of the Jewish nation. Where does the Old Testament have authority over me and where does it not? Well, the first impact of the law and 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 one of the fourfold purposes of the law. The first one is that it reveals God's righteousness and perfection. We've seen this in his in this marvelous Psalm 19. Second, the law reveals our unrighteousness. We don't have to read very far in here to real realize that we hadn't kept it, that we failed, that we've, we've messed up along the way. We just have have ha, ha, have not done what we were supposed to do. Now, for most of us, that means that our hope is, well, I'm going to get there, you know, and I'm going to look around, and I'm going to find somebody. Drew Peterson, I think I'm better than him, so maybe I'm in. You know, because I figure Drew's getting in and... Make The the Scripture says if you violate one point of the law, you're guilty of all, violating the whole thing. And Scripture reveals our unrighteousness. Third, God's law controls behavior. It keeps us in line. If there were no law of the land, no repercussions for immoral behavior, how much of the current law would you keep? I mean, if the government said, you need to report all of your income, including as they do, including income that is not recorded in any way. It's cash for job that you get, side jobs. All that counts as income. But there were absolutely no repercussions for you. And this, this is a very mild thing that I'm talking about, in our minds anyway. How much would you report? Well, some of you with a pretty strong conscience would. Those of us who are OCD would, but, you know, the rest of you would probably say, hey, that's, that's great money right there. I mean, it's a law, but hey, there are no consequences. The law keeps us in line. How fast would you drive if there were no no speed limits on the road? And and we can go on and on and on. Bill Miller drives that way anyway, but uh, but the rest of you would, you know, try to keep up with him. I, on the other hand, I'm ashamed to admit this, and I really shouldn't, But I find myself driving under the speed limit. I am really getting old before my time. I never thought I'd say, thank God for cruise control that way, you know, to keep me getting where I need to go. You know, the laws of government keep our lands from anarchy. And man's laws are always based to some degree on God's laws. Now, not the unjust ones, but but just laws are always based on god's law romans 2 says that even if i don't know anything about god's law my conscience will provide direction for what is right and wrong fourth the law points us to jesus that's that's a fourfold purpose of the law now this would be a time when we could go on and conclude this psalm in verses 12 to 14 understanding as we do that the law here Is a description of all of the Bible. For us, this includes the New Testament writings as well as the Old Testament writings. But before we do, let's talk a little bit about the Christ followers' relationship to the Old Testament. Our relationship to the law of God that was given through Moses. We look at the law differently than God's covenant people, the Jews, did. We enjoy a new covenant bought with the blood of Jesus to save those who were incapable of keeping The law, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, Jesus said, before he shared it at the table, the Lord's table. And that blood was necessary because we were incapable of keeping that law that was given. So how do we relate to the law? Is it meaningless to us? Are Old Testament scriptures irrelevant to Christians apart from telling the story of God's redemptive plan? And we, and we just say, okay, I see, I see all that. But I don't really pay any attention to anything except Matthew 1. Well, let's start by remembering that all of the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. In Luke twenty four forty four, after he had been resurrected from the dead, Jesus told his disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus was, was dividing the Old Testament up into three different categories, but this is the way all Jews understood the Old, Old Testament. They s- divided it into three sections. First, the law, which was the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And again, some of that was narrative. It wasn't all commandments. Some of it was just telling a story. Second, Psalms, uh, sometimes referred to as the writings, which, in addition to Psalms, included all the wisdom literature of Proverbs and Job and and Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes. And then three, prophets, which was pretty much everything else, all the prophetic books and major and minor prophets and all the historical books. So Scripture was divided up into those three. And Jesus said, they all had to be fulfilled. They all pointed to me. Furthermore, it's important to note, when we're thinking about Old Testament, New Testament, that a great deal of the New Testament consists of quoting Old Testament verses and passages. You see the Old Testament all through the New Testament. There are times where you say, whoa, I didn't realize that. Now, some translations will set it off in, 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 in a poetic kind of fashion, and it helps you remember, especially the Psalms, that that's Coming from somewhere else, this is this is something that is being quoted. And almost always it's the Old Testament that's being quoted. But remember, even though all the Old Testament pointed to Jesus and God's new covenant with those who would follow his son, there was a problem with the law. And Jesus took care of that problem for us. Since we were incapable of keeping the law, when Jesus died, did He render it null and void? Unnecessary? Or, is God's will found in the Old Testament for us? Can we go to the Old Testament and find God's will for us in the same way that we can find it in the New Testament? Well, John Piper answers that question by saying this. A simple yes would be misleading, and a simple no would be misleading. Also, First of all, we need to remember that Jesus himself said in Matthew five seventeen, Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have, come to, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And he did so perfectly. And that was a huge part of Jesus' mission was to keep the law perfectly so that he would be an eligible and perfect sacrifice for us when he died on the cross. I can't die for you. You can't die for me. You can't die for your spouse as much as you love him or her. Because you've got to pay for your own sins. Jesus hadn't, didn't have to pay for his own sins. So he was eligible to pay for mine and for yours. At the same time, even though Jesus said, I have come to fulfill the law perfectly, and he did so. His sacrifice would render the Old Testament sacrificial system and ceremonial laws unnecessary. I mean, Jesus said as much about the ceremonial laws when talking with his disciples about clean and unclean foods in Mark seven eighteen and 19. Whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled. And then Mark added, thus he declared all foods clean. Now, Mark added this many years after Jesus what Jesus said, but the Pharisees knew exactly what he was saying. And what he was saying was difficult for them to stomach, pun intended. That was nothing, though, compared to Jesus' declaration to these same Jewish leaders in Matthew twenty-one forty-three. 43. They didn't like this at all. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. The implications of God bringing Gentiles into covenant relationship with himself... Through Jesus, we huge. Now, don't jump to conclusions about where I'm going with all of this, okay? Hang on. If you're getting a little upset, just hang on. John Piper, again, sums it up well. Quote, No longer is it God's will that His people take vengeance in His name on the wicked, as in the case of the conquest of Canaan. No longer do God's people, the followers of Jesus, govern themselves by putting to death Blasphemers, or adulterers, or fornicators, or Sabbath breakers, or sorcerers, or false witnesses. End quote. Beginning to see that we're not bound to the Old Testament law. that And all of the commandments in the Old Testament. God had a special relationship with his covenant people, the Jews. And he m- meant them to be a testimony to show the world of his goodness and his faithfulness. You know, is it, I've always thought about Balaam and Balak. Balaam and Balak, if you prefer. Or Balak and Balim, if you really prefer. But I'm just going to say Balak and Balaam. Balak called for the prophet Balaam. And he said, I want you to curse these Jewish people. He was a prophet for hire. A mercenary prophet, if you will. And he said, Curse these people, because I know when you curse them, God will judge them. Balaam said, I, I, I can't. I can't. I, I see nothing but beauty. I, I see this incredible nation that God has blessed with his love and his mercy, and they are beautiful to me. He took them to the back. To the back of the, to, he said, "All right, we're on a high place. I want let's go back here in the back." You know why I went to the back? Because that's where the riffraff was. Now, I'm not saying anything about the people in the back rows in this church this morning. I, I promise you, I'm not saying anything about that. But it, it, in that kind of a congregation, all the troublemakers kind of hung to the back. You remember what it was like in school? I was always in the back if I could be, because I was always into some trouble. And, and Balaam said the same thing, essentially. Obviously, I didn't look this up this morning. This is one of those rants that I'm, I'm on today. But, but, but Balaam just said, they're beautiful. Now, who was this that he was calling beautiful? That bunch that was walking around in the wilderness for 40 years. And look, and it's the way sometimes we look at our lives and we say, I'm so, how can I even be a Christian with stuff that I'm doing? I'm so disappointed with myself. I'm so disgusted with certain behaviors. God is saying there is no condemnation. We're going to come to that in a minute. I love you. Because he sees us through Jesus. Well, that was a covenant relationship that he had with the Jews. Now he's got this covenant relationship with the church. And none of this means that God has forgotten the Jews. Almost all of the New Testament writers were Jewish, Luke being the notable exception. Even Luke recorded in the book of Acts what Paul's plan was. Go to the synagogue, he'd enter a city, he'd go to the synagogue, he'd preach to the Jews. When they rejected him, which they almost inevitably did, then he would go to the Gentiles. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ as the power of God to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, to the Gentile. God was building, though, when Paul would move to the Gentiles, a new people for himself that consisted, we're told repeatedly, of Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, men and women. All barriers were broken down. Nobody was excluded from this new kingdom, this new covenant relationship. All were invited. I think of Christianity as a very inclusive religion with a very exclusive message. Anybody can come, but you got to come this way. There's only one way, and that's through Jesus. It does not matter who you are. If you come through Jesus, you're in. Will God again bring the Jewish nation as a whole back to Himself at the end of the age? I think yes. A number of theologians think no. We're not going there this morning, okay? Lest we start hearing, crucify Him, crucify Him. I don't want to hear that focus this morning is on the relationship that Christ followers have to the law. And as we have seen, the ceremonial laws and the sacrificial system of the Old Testament are no longer binding on Christ followers. Hebrews makes that very clear. The sacrificial system is done. Jesus was the perfect. It was impossible that the blood of bulls and goats take away sins. Jesus' blood does just that. Going back to Matthew 21, 43 for a moment. What are the fruits expected of Jesus' followers? Over and over in the New Testament, the answer is love. Now, you're going to have to trust me on this since I'm not going to put any Scripture on the screen, but but, but it said over and over and over. In fact, love was the answer in the Old Testament. But it got lost in the stringent demands of the law, people's attempt to to keep the stringent demands on the law and because of of human weakness. In the New Testament, we're given the Holy Spirit who produces fruit in our lives, the highest of which is is love. The Holy Spirit does for and through us what we were unable to do ourselves with regard to the law. In fact, in Galatians 5, immediately after the fruit of the Spirit is listed, love, joy, peace, patience, faithfulness, etc., we're told... You know what? There's no law against any of these. If you walk in the power of the Spirit, then you're fulfilling the law. And the first order of business, the highest virtue, is love. And that's why Jesus said the whole law and prophets can be summed up in two things. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind. Second, love your neighbor as yourself. So, Does this mean that Christians have no responsibility to keep the law, especially the law of the Old Testament? Well, that's not what all of this means. Let's let's try to bring it together in Romans 8, 1 to 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This verse is probably ministered to me more than any other in the last year or two. No condemnation. To those who are in Christ Jesus, as I think about all the implications. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Because sin brings death upon it. The principle, he's talking about the principle of sin and death. And then verses 3 and 4. For, what, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Verses 3 and 4 are crucial to our understanding of the Christ follower's relationship to the law. First, sinful men and women... We're never going to be able to keep the law perfectly. It wasn't happening. The weakness was not in the law, but it was in sinful flesh. That's what verse 3 tells us. The law was weak because of the flesh. It wasn't a flaw in the law, if you will. It was a flaw in my character and my inability, my nature, my inability to keep this law. Sin separates us from God. So God sent Jesus to fulfill the law perfectly and die as a substitute for our sins, as we've already said. Thus, the righteous requirements of the law have been met for us by Jesus. That's part of what verse 4 is saying. You ever gone somewhere, maybe a real exclusive place, and you didn't have any chance of getting in there, except that you were with somebody who was accepted. And they said, oh, you're with him, okay, you're with her, all right, go ahead. Come on in. Well, that's kind of what it's like. God's, Jesus' righteous fulfillment of the law counts for me because I'm with him. And Jesus says, he's with me. And God says, the Father says, come on in. Welcome, my beloved. Welcome. That's part of what verses 4 say,ing But it's also saying... That we can live righteous lives in accordance with God's design for our lives in His law. Or to clarify for us, for us in His word. All of His word. That doesn't mean that once I'm a Christian, I'm now able to keep the law in my own power. And we get in trouble all the time when we start to do that. When we try to live this thing in our own strength. Look carefully at verse 4. Jesus died in verse 3. In order that, verse 4, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. In the Greek, this verb is in the passive voice. In other words, this is the righteous requirements of the law, not something that I fulfill. It's something that Jesus does for me. He's the one that enables me to live in a way that pleases Him. God gives us the power to obey His Word when we walk in the Spirit instead of the flesh. And He's basically not only just doing it for us, He's doing it through us. The the righteous requirements of the law are being fulfilled in us. And what's characteristic? We're walking after the Spirit or in step with the Spirit is what He told us earlier this year, and not in step with the flesh. Not according to the dictates, the desires of my own life, my own heart and mind, but according to His Spirit. So, should we keep the Ten Commandments? I hope you do. (laughs) I hope you keep the Ten Commandments. I don't want to be around if you don't. You know, especially that murdering part, or that lying part, and that, you know, because it's going to hurt me deeply if you don't keep the Ten Commandments. But we must do so in the power of the Spirit, and we Do so, not so that we can be good enough to gain God's favor, but in loving response to the salvation that he has given us through Jesus. So, what's the Old Testament's, I mean the Christians, the Christ followers' response to the Old Testament law? Well, we see, wherever we see God's moral law, then yes, absolutely. We see ceremonial laws, we see sacrificial system. No, all of that's been done away with by Jesus God's moral law still applies to us, but we always obey Scripture through the Spirit. Not because God said it, and I'm going to do it, because I'm good enough to. We're not good enough to. We're not. It has to be through Him. So let's go back to Psalm 19. Read about the beauty and blessing of God's Word, and then read what our response should be. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them, by your commands, your your word, your testimonies, is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. And then our response in verses 12 to 14. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent. From hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion, power, authority, rule over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, inside and out, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord my rock and my redeemer. In other words, Lord, forgive my sins, both hidden sins that I don't even recognize in myself and then the presumptuous sins, the ones that I full well know what I'm doing. I go into with eyes wide open. Forgive them all. To see yourself as a sinner is the first step in a relationship with God, but it doesn't end when you become a Christian. We constantly need to be evaluated and ask the Holy Spirit to evaluate our hearts. Another wonderful reminder from Psalm 139. Search me, O Lord. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. We need to constantly open ourselves before the Lord and say, examine me. And please, when you expose sins, God, I repent. Please forgive me. Even those who have long belonged to the Lord need to confess and repent of their sins. And then in verse 14, David says, Lord, purify my heart and my mouth. Allow me to please you in all that I think, say, and do. What a great prayer. What a great prayer. Let's let's bow our heads and, and ask for the Lord to do the same for us. Please begin this time by... Asking God, first of all, just to forgive you for both hidden and presumptuous sins. Would you do that? Then would you you pray that prayer? Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer.